Welcome to the May 2020 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I am professor and head of kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. I'm very pleased today to be able to welcome Kate Fetterplace, who is an accredited practicing dietitian at Royal Melbourne Hospital. On behalf of her colleagues, she's here today to tell us about some of the work she's actually completed for her PhD thesis uh, in a paper entitled Systemic Review with Meta-Analysis of Patient-Centered Outcomes, Comparing International Guideline Recommended Enteral Protein Delivery with Usual Care. Welcome, Kate. Thanks very much. I was so pleased to see this paper come through at JPEN because this is such a hotly debated issue, as you obviously know. How much protein should we be feeding our critically ill patients? Uh, we have guidelines that, that give us a variety of answers on this question. So I am, am quite pleased to see what you've done. What, was that the rationale for why you and your colleagues conducted this work? Yeah, I think, you know, reading the international guidelines, we you know, we, we're recommended to give 1.2 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram per day. And uh, I suppose it was really starting to investigate that a little bit more about what the evidence actually says. Uh, a lot of the systematic reviews that have been done previously didn't actually look at protein within the current guideline recommendations versus usual care. Um, and they just looked at two different protein amounts. So I don't think it necessarily gave you a lot of information um, around what's the current evidence for, for the guideline recommendations. Sure, that's very, very interesting. So how did you go about this? As you said, you took a different approach to the clinical guidelines from various organizations around the world uh, and looked at usual care. How, how did you decide what usual care was? Uh, I suppose we, we wanted to make sure that the intervention group was getting uh, protein within the current guideline recommendation. So we, we set the limit at 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram per day uh, at the lower end of the guidelines, just because we, we didn't know how many studies out there actually achieved a lot more than that. Uh, and then in the paper, we've, we decided anything less than 1.2 was, was more closer to usual care. But yeah, we, we didn't actually know exactly what that standard care group might receive. But once we started to collect the data and, and started to be able to analyze the data, we, we found that um, the usual care group got 0.75 grams of protein per kilogram per day, which is very similar to some of the international nutrition surveys where uh, patients get around 0 0.6, 0 0.7 grams of protein per kilogram per day. Um, based on, on standard care in, in the intensive care. Uh, consistent with the surveys, albeit less than what we would have as the, the recommended amount, certainly from the DRIs yeah. for healthy individuals in the US. So, so certainly exactly. something uh, requiring our attention. So what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria for, for using various trials? So we uh, included studies that um, that obviously one of the groups received greater than 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram per day and the other received less. And we, had, we also only wanted to include studies where there was a statistically significant difference between the two groups. 
so that we could be sure that um, there was a significant difference and, and that the intervention was um, providing a greater amount of protein. Uh, we also only included adult patients, randomised control trials, patients that were admitted to the ICU and mechanically ventilated. So we didn't want trials that were sort of more um, HDU trials or anything like that. Uh, and we also only included those that uh, had one of the outcomes of interest. So you will see from the paper that we weren't only interested in mortality as that's, that's often the, the most reported outcome and, and obviously a very important outcome, but we were interested in, uh, in studies that also included any other functional outcomes because we, we think this is an, a really important uh, issue that we need to look at is how patients recover from the ICU. So um, we had to, we were looking for those papers specifically, which uh, were important, uh, but they had to include one of our, our outcomes of interest. Um, we also excluded patients that got exclusive parenteral nutrition uh, because this paper we really were wanting to focus on the delivery of enteral nutrition because as per standard practice, the guidelines recommend that we should be providing enteral nutrition where possible. Um, so we wanted to focus on, on papers that actually were, were providing enteral nutrition to patients, uh, not, not um, complete parenteral nutrition studies. Um, so we didn't exclude it if they got a, a small amount of parenteral nutrition within the study, but we, we excluded um, exclusive parenteral nutrition. Okay, so are you confounding your results given there's the question between parenteral or enteral administration, does that confound your results then between level of protein administration if there's uh, a difference in how it's administered? Yeah, well, that, that's why we excluded the parenteral nutrition really, because the parenteral nutrition may be a confounding factor. And so we just wanted to really look predominantly at enteral. Um, and see what the results showed. Um, other systematic reviews in the past have combined both parental and enteral nutrition. Um, but yeah, they, I suppose that's a, a more of a confounding factor, adding them both together. So what was the level amongst the studies that you looked at? How high did the, the combination of the two get? Like, would you have accepted a, a, a trial that had 80% of the nutrients coming from parenteral nutrition, albeit not exclusive, but still the majority coming via PM. Yeah, look, we no, we excluded any that had the majority coming from parenteral nutrition. So um, it was it was difficult to tell in some studies exactly how much parenteral nutrition was provided, but anything that was more than about 50% of um, the energy coming from parenteral nutrition, we, we didn't include. So what did you expect to look at then? What were the outcome measures that you wanted to assess? So our, our main outcome measures included mortality. Uh, we also looked at uh, ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay. And then the other outcomes of interest were the functional outcomes and patient-centered outcomes. So that included muscle mass, muscle strength, uh, physical function or functional ability at, at ICU or hospital discharge, 
quality of life measures um, at any time point. We, we didn't put a specific time point on that because I think it's not collected very often. Um, requirement to uh, go to a rehabilitation facility. Um, so we really wanted to look more deeply at some of those other outcomes uh, that we think are quite important, but of course also uh, looking at, at the mortality and length of stay information. And were those your primary outcomes then? What was your primary outcome measure? Yeah, the primary outcome was uh, muscle mass or muscle strength. Um, because that was our, our main uh, outcome of interest and then all the others were secondary outcomes. And did you have a requirement regarding what method was used to measure muscle mass or strength? So we, we didn't set that at the start. We just said any validated measurement. So that could, for muscle mass, that could have included ultrasound measurements, CT analysis, um, DEXA if that was done. Um, so any of those methods, oh, including BIA as well, or BIS, um, bioimpedance. Um, so we were looking for all of those. Um, and with muscle strength, we were looking at um, the Medical Research Council, um, the MRC score, and also hand grip strength um, were the two main ones we, we had identified prior to, to doing the research. Okay, very good. So one more question before we talk about the results. What was your methodology? Yep. Uh, what systematic review meta-analyses methodology did you follow? So we followed the Cochrane methodology um, and the PRISMA um, format. Um, so we made sure it was a very rigorous um, methodology in terms of searching the literature. We incorporated um, review of four databases um, with key search terms. So we did a very thorough review of the literature in accordance to the Cochrane um, guidelines. Very good. So tell us what you learned. So uh, we really uh, searched the, all those databases and we identified uh, 2,215 records. Um, however, uh, once we uh, removed the duplicates, we um, identified 1,375 abstracts for screening. And once we went through all of those, we had 69 full, full articles to, to review. Uh, and then finally, once we put all the exclusion criteria, applied all of them, we uh, only identified six studies, six randomised control trials that met all of the inclusion and no of the exclusion criteria. So it really highlighted to me that there's limited data to, to answer this research question because within the six studies, there was only 511 patients that had been randomised to either a, high, a higher protein or a, a protein um, intervention that was greater than the recommended guidelines. And, and then with the usual care group being less than the, the current recommendation. So only five out of the six studies actually incorporated uh, mortality and only two of the studies actually incorporated any of the functional outcome measures, including the muscle mass measurement and muscle strength. So um, it really highlighted that there is a lack of data um, available to really answer this question and, and get us to understand exactly how much protein we should be giving our patients, and particularly the, the impact on, on some of these patient-centered outcomes.
Yes, yeah, something that so many clinicians are wondering about and thinking about on a daily basis, yet very few trials. Uh, you know, it also highlights for me, you started with 2,215 records. Uh, it, it always yeah. impresses me how stringent many of these methodologies are for helping us really hone in on our question of interest. Okay, so what did yeah. you find then? So in terms of the functional outcome measures, the primary outcome, as I mentioned, there was only uh, two studies that actually incorporated any of those. One of those actually was a study that we undertook, also part of my PhD program um, that was published in JPEN as well in 2018. And in that study, we did find that a higher protein intervention uh, did attenuate muscle loss as measured by ultrasound. Um, by a significant amount. Uh, we're not sure what, what that really means. Um, it is pilot data, um, but it gives us some, some indication that the higher protein may be beneficial to minimise muscle loss. Um, and the other study that, that incorporated some functional outcomes, but not muscle mass or strength was the study by Alan Strapp and colleagues, um, which was published in 2017. That was the EAT. ICU study people may have heard of, uh, but that uh, did provide a significant amount of protein in the intervention of 1.4 grams of protein per kilogram per day, and the standard care group received only 0.5, um, and they didn't find any difference in any of the functional outcomes, and their main primary outcome was quality of life at six months after ICU discharge. So interestingly, I think yeah, it's very difficult to draw conclusions around the functional outcomes just because we've got only very limited numbers. They had uh, 200 patients in their study and we only had 60 in ours, so very limited numbers. And then in terms of, we did meta-analyses on the mortality data and we found that there wasn't a significant impact of the higher protein intervention compared to the usual care on mortality. However, the point estimates did favour the higher protein group by point by 8%. So it was a, it was a slight trend towards um, higher protein, but uh, of course there was only less than 500 patients included in that meta-analysis. So uh, we know with mortality we need uh, thousands of patients or maybe even and more than that um, to actually probably show a, a significant impact on mortality. So just highlighting that the current data doesn't necessarily show a benefit at this stage, but we need more data to actually uh, understand whether it does impact uh, mortality. Um, and then in terms of length of stay, uh, both in ICU and uh, in hospital, we found no impact of the higher protein on uh, length of stay. Um, however, there was significant heterogeneity across the studies. There was a, a quite, in some studies, there was a quite significant pull towards the higher protein, but then others were, were quite opposite and um, there was actually a longer length of stay with the higher protein intervention. So I think it's still difficult to tell, as I said, the, the, the limited amount of numbers um, really uh, make it difficult to interpret um, the understanding of, of what the impact is on, on length of stay. And length of stay is a very difficult outcome measure um, due to all the other confounding factors with length of stay. I do tend to agree with you uh, looking at these data that you have published. So if you were to design a pivotal trial 
how would you set that up? So I think um, I think it's really important to power the study um, appropriately for the primary outcome. When we're looking at mortality, uh, I know that you know the biggest uh, randomised trial for nutrition was one of the ones um, that was published by uh, our colleagues here in Australia, uh, ANZIC's trial group, the Target study, and looking at energy delivery, and they had 4,000 participants. So potentially we need bigger studies than that even to, to actually show a difference on mortality. I think in terms of we do need to incorporate other patient-centred outcomes other than mortality because I suppose it's, it's probably unclear of, of how much nutrition and how much protein can impact mortality depending on the length of the trial. Um, so I think incorporating some other functional outcomes is, is probably really important things such as you know whether muscle mass is a, is a good measurement um, to actually show us the impact of the nutrition therapy but other things like muscle strength quality of life after after discharge I think might be an important one to include as well obviously it needs to be ideally double blinded studies are the most uh, stringent so uh, that would be ideal uh, a double blinded study uh, very big and uh, incorporating some patient-centered outcomes uh, would be important. All right, very good. I uh, guess we will await until you and your colleagues <laughs> are able to lead, lead uh, that study for us. Uh, I yeah. want to thank you for joining us today, Kate. This is very important work. Congratulations on, on having this work published and uh, I wish you all the best as you you defend your thesis later on this year. Right. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. For our readers, please do go to the May 2020 issue of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition and read the paper uh, just discussed by Kate Fetterplace on behalf of her colleagues at Royal Melbourne Hospital entitled Systemic Review with Meta-Analysis of Patient-Centered Outcomes, Comparing International Guideline Recommended Enteral Protein Delivery with Usual Care.